What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I have Dwayne Brown, who I'm now nicknaming Dwayne Dwan Brown because he recently moved to Montreal. Dwayne runs a marketing agency called Take Some Risk out of Canada. He's traveled the planet and then some. And today we're going to talk about marketing startups. Welcome, Dwayne Dwan. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's all right. I, like, hopefully that nickname will stick. It will stick from me to you at least, which is the only gift I really have to give anybody is words and nicknames. So like that, man. <laughs> it's cool. That's cool. I'm, I'm down with that. Like uh, I'm, I'm incompetent at kind of everything else. Uh, marketing startups. So you, you work with a lot of smallish companies, right? And you're helping them often operationalize how they go to market. Go to market's one of these phrases that's really popped up in the, I guess, the strategy world in the past couple of years. What are you seeing as some of the main challenges for startups in making marketing decisions? Yeah, so we definitely help them operationalize and we try to go beyond just marketing. We want them to run an effective and profitable business. And so one of our clients is actually based in New York. So I'll probably be seeing them in April when I go down to speak at a conference. And so, you know, one of the things we were talking about the other day actually was. You know, this is this task we, we've given them that we can't do because we just don't have access to the system. You know, it's been a few weeks and we're like, you know, why don't you hire, you know, an intern or you've got a niece or a nephew in the family and just have that young person do the task for you because it'd be better to spend your time on sourcing new product, talking with vendors, fixing, you know, if you have a warehouse ex- issue, fixing that warehouse issue, um, and so sometimes we find just a lot of clients spread themselves too thin. They try to do everything. And like counterintuitive as it sounds, my experience and your experience may be different a little bit, Mark, is we found that if you focus a little bit more and not try to do a dozen things, but you try to do six things, you can build a better base of a foundation in your business and then layer on top more tasks or more things you need to do down the road. Mm-hmm. And so we're just seeing a lot of clients just spread themselves thin and trying to do like, you know, trying to do Google and Facebook and Bing while they also try to like get their SEO going and then they try to like fix their employee issue and their HR issue and just, you know, trying to get more clients to slow down a little bit. And let's think about like why we're doing what we're going to do, what's going to help us get to our goal of, you know, doubling our revenue this month instead of trying to do everything and beat everything to everyone. Because if you spread yourself too thin, you'll just burn out and your business will go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And are you mostly working with DTC, direct-to-consumer companies? Mm, yes and no. I mean, that's just kind of what comes to us. You know, our focus is definitely on e-commerce, and we also have a lot of sort of technology, SaaS or software-as-a-service clients. Um, so our toy one is a mix of both. They have their own products, and they also sell a lot of what I'm going to classify as bougie toys, and I've told them this just because they're expensive toys I would not have had as a kid growing up being like a poor kid raised by a single mom um, but then we just have some clients who are like SaaS and they're selling you know software some sort of service or some technology company and they're trying to sell their app in into the b2b crowd or b2c crowd um, like even today somebody reached out and they're trying to do like drop shipping for watches and i'm like we could probably take you on but this is like a super competitive space you're not going to be like that watch brand that got bought by i don't know whoever it was last year the the mn tv or whatever they're called um, and so we're just also seeing a lot of startups just try to copy what's already been successful, mm. um, but not be as like successful at it. Okay. So as we, as we go through this chat, I know a little bit of industry, like some jargon will get dropped in, right? So, so drop shipping and 
when you're in that e-commerce DTC space, these words are just regular words, but there are a lot of people who are in other parts of marketing and other parts of the strategy world who might not even know what dropshipping is. So I'm going to ask you to explain them. What is dropshipping? Yeah, no, it's totally cool. Yeah. So dropshipping is basically, you know, you set up a website, people come to your website, they buy your product, and then either, let's say you bought it on Amazon, Amazon would ship it for you because it's in an Amazon warehouse, or if you bought it on a website, your information will get passed on to the actual vendor and the vendor will ship it for that company. So really you're buying essentially from a third party who makes it seem like they're selling it directly when in fact it's getting shipped off from the actual company or, or some third party in general. Uh, what's great about it is these companies don't have to take on any inventory because inventory is always the biggest issue in any sort of retail e-commerce scenario. But the downside of it is you've seen every young person in their grandma thinking they can have a drop ship or some sort of e-commerce company because there's more access to all this product now that we maybe didn't have 30 or 40 years ago. We definitely had it probably 20, 30 years ago, maybe in the late 80s when like catalogs were a big thing, like Sears catalog and stuff like that. That is like, in some ways, essentially drop shipping because it just sits in some big warehouse when you order it and it just gets shipped out by like Sears or one of their partners um, and comes and comes to you. Yeah. And so drop shipping means that you don't hold inventory and it could come as is from the manufacturer wholesaler to the person who buys from your website, or you might allow them to customize it as well, correct? That is correct, yeah. So some people will have it shipped from the distributor to whoever you bought it from, and they'll customize it, put it in some fancy box, put some marketing collateral in it, make it look, make it look a little bit more sexy, and then they'll ship it to you, um, which obviously might add a day or two in this sort of shipping process. Shipping yeah. and drop shipping isn't a bad thing, but I would say to clients and people we talk to, if I can go find it on AliExpress for like really cheap, it's probably not an industry you want to get into. Like two of our clients do drop shipping and they're super niche in what they do and they're super interested in spaces. So if you're going to do drop shipping, pick something that's unique and not like a dime does an idea because we don't need another watch vendor, fidget spend, fidget vendor or something like that. Hmm. And uh, AliExpress is Alibaba's, the big Chinese e-commerce I mean, it's huge, but it's uh, their express store, which allows people to buy things wholesale or in this manner, correct? Yes. Yeah. Right, cool. So, yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know, I, I find this one-on-one stuff. I often, you know, a lot of people who do say brand strategy or social media strategy, they're not really in this world. I'm in at least one drop shipping group on Facebook because I love watching the conversations and learning about it. And just to give people a really simple example, uh, there's actually a yoga podcast that I check out sometimes. And there are these, these things, these toe separators that you can buy on AliExpress. I don't know if you've seen these, Dwayne Duan. These toe, se- toe separators or strengtheners, right? And let's say they're three dollars plastic right and then this yoga podcast i know they put them in a box a wooden box they put their logo maybe etched onto the box and sell them for tens and tens of dollars and so it's quite interesting to to watch people try to wrestle with margins and creating these businesses that for some people are are super important you know they're trying to create these different lives maybe not dependent on a job might have lost a job i know people who have been who've tried to survive divorces by trying to create these online websites so it's, it's really passionate kind of sometimes desperate area but there's also a lot of nonsense in that space a lot of people on youtube and people selling courses that are you know a little bit it can be a little bit uh, janky, a little bit shonky. 
in other words like that. But I, look, I think it is important if you're doing any kind of strategy work, just follow a drop shipping group. Try to get into one on Facebook and see what people are doing and how they're thinking and what they're talking about. It's a really interesting community. Are you in any drop shipping communities? Not specifically. I mean, we're like a Shopify partner, so we're in like the Shopify page and we're in the community forums. And so there are often people will come there who are doing drop shipping. And I'm pretty well known on the Reddit so thread for PVC. And so people will come there with their drops questions. And we've done enough client work to really understand the space really well and understand if something's going to succeed or at least have a good chance. Um, and so it's interesting just to see how people talk about it. Everyone thinks because they went to YouTube and they, and they Google dropship and they followed like Sam Griffin in Montreal or, or Joe John in New York that talked about how he made millions of dollars from dropship and that they can do it too. But I think kind of like you said, a lot of these people are just selling courses and info packs and they actually have no idea what they're doing. And it was more luck than they actually like picked the right product and it was successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't mean to get us stuck into such a specific space, but I think it's really interesting because it's like I said, not only for people listening to this who might want to set up their own thing, but just to understand the business models at play, right? And it sounds like from what you were saying at the very start that because you're working largely with startups that you get to go into the business and the business model through the marketing door, whereas a lot of people who work with large and established companies might think they can touch the business model or touch the business through the marketing door and they cannot and sometimes they're just doing social media calendars and they thought they could talk about business problems or marketing problems, right? Yeah, that's definitely there. I mean, it's it's no different than agencies who sell the sizzle and, and smoke and mirrors and stuff like that, right? It, it it sounds good at at a surface level, but if you dig deep, it's maybe not as as intellectually smart as people would make it out to be. You know, part of it's just like, you know, I freelanced in Toronto, you know, I've lived in the UK, I've lived in Australia, as you know, um, and even just running my own business, like we tell clients, our goal is to make you profitable, right? And for most clients, that's, you know, a ROAS of three. And so ROAS is return on ad spend. So, if, you know, for every dollar you spend on Google or Facebook, you know, we want to make sure you get $3 back. Because all things being equal, getting $3 back usually makes most of our clients profitable. You know, one client we talked to on Tuesday, they would need a four or five ROAS because they sell these really like higher end bamboo PJs. Um, so we definitely use like our own experience of just running a company to help clients figure out like, you know, where can they save time? Where can they save money? Like, is there technology they can use? Like we're big fans of technology. If we understand, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if we can integrate technology in there to save them time, then, then let's do that because there's, there's always so much time in the day. There's always so much money. We don't want to waste time doing things that we can automate in some way or, or just do it a different way that's a lot more effective mm-hmm. if we're going to reach the same end goal. So looking at return on ad spend is obviously a pretty simple calculation, but what other numbers do you find yourself going into to work out how to increase that return and the margin within that return? Yeah, so I actually just had a Twitter chat about this on Tuesday. So a lot of it's called like customer retention or i.e., you know, you've sold and gotten one customer once, but you need to convince that customer to come back and buy a second or third time because usually acquiring a customer once will always be pretty expensive and you need a customer to come back a second and third time to just, well, be profitable, but also just build a business, right? If you only have one-off customers, your business will eventually just drive and die. So a lot of it's figuring out, you know, what is the most popular products, you know, so our client has a toy brand that's really popular. So we're figuring out, you know, is there a way for me to show the best-selling products of all time to anyone who's come and not bought that exact product or that, you know, top 10 product? So if they bought, you know, 
brand Z, can I show them brands A, B, and C in a nice Facebook ad and have them come back and buy that a second time just because it is our most popular products, our customers love it, they leave reviews, that social proof that it's a great product would probably convince parents to come back and buy this like, in this case, we're trying to sell a bike right now. It's like 350 bucks, um, and we sold about three or four of them in the last couple of weeks. Um, and so we're figuring out, like, what else can we show this person who's clearly got money to come back and have them buy a second time? Um, and so a lot of it's just figuring out, like, what's really popular? What can we upsell someone? What, what can we cross-sell? So cross-sell is the idea of, like, person who bought A would also buy B. And so if we know you bought A, can we show you an ad for item B or show you an email for item B to get you to buy it. You know, upselling is basically someone's looking at the $180 biker client sales. Can we upsell you on a $350 bike? Because, well, it's just $350. Um, I don't know if it's worth more, but the fact that like you looked at bike A that's 180, you'd probably come up and we can probably upsell you on the 350 bike because it's brand new. It doesn't come out for another two, three weeks. Your kid will be the coolest kid on the block, kind of like back in the day when everyone had a Nintendo and it was hot to have a Nintendo. It's now hot to have like this, it's called bandwidth. It's, it's now hot to, it's now hot to have this like bandwood bicycle. Hmm. Okay. And then how long does it take you to find the right channels and the right message? You know, what, what kind of turnaround on multivariate testing do you find with most clients? You know, obviously, like every client's a little bit different. We generally tell clients, and usually this is true, we can probably get you profitable in 60 days. I don't think we're ever satisfied with messaging. We'll have messaging that continues to work. We always want to find out, like, what's better, what's different. Because, like, customers are not always, like, homogeneous in the sense that, like, there's just one type of customer. Like, the customers who buy you know, this bicycle are probably not the same people who buy some of the other products because they're, they're a little bit different and their child might be different as well. So we're trying to figure out like what are the subsets within our group and most of the people who buy um, and most of our clients who sell stuff usually are targeted women. So I'm always trying to figure out like how do we get like, you know, like you, for example, Mark, like how do we get dads like you to like come and the site and buy a toy for your two kids, right? Like, how do I get fathers to do it or single dads in general? Um, because that's usually the missing part of a lot of our clients is they've sold to women, women come, they're 60, 70% of the business, but how do we get more men to come and shop? Um, whether they're a single dad or they're just like, they know they need to buy their kid a, a gift. Mm-hmm. And are you doing much additional research to top up that, well, that online data that you're getting? Because obviously with that, maybe a dad is going to buy the thing, maybe, but Maybe it could be better to chase uh, more mums or grandparents or cousins or nieces, nephews, aunties, uncles, whatever it is. Like, how do you, are you doing research outside of the ad platforms to help you inform those decisions? Yes, as much as we can, we talk to like actual customers, like if our clients would just talk to the customers or we'll use Hotjar, which is like a piece of software you can put in your website and run a poll. So ask, you know, are you familiar with this brand or why did you buy this brand? Um, The data one is always really hard because our clients never have tons of customers to talk with to begin with. It's easy to like interview the moms or the grandparents because um, there's usually usually more grandparents and grand yeah grandparents um, buying than like dads, so it's it's always challenging to talk to the dad. So like a lot of my like I'm 37 in a couple months, and so a lot of my friends in the late 20s or early 30s are having kids now. You know, one or two kids, and so I'm talking to all of them. And be like, you know, would you buy this for your kid? And like, why not? And why would like your wife do it versus you? And so I try to like tap into my network of parents that I know. Um, cause it can really, it can be really hard just to talk to dads who are on a client's side because there's just so few of them and they sometimes can't be bothered to like want to talk to me, which 
I totally don't take it personally because I understand like we all have tons of things going on in our lives right now. So we've talked about ROAS, ROAS, return on ad spend as being one of the key metrics that you look at. What are some of the other important metrics and concepts that you find yourself discussing with clients most days? Uh, the only one would be either CPA or CPL, which stands for cost for acquisition or cost per lead. So if it's not an e-commerce client, maybe it's like a B2B, we might talk about the cost to get a lead. A lead might be someone who signs up for like, you know, an advertising account or some sort of free account. Um, and then a cost for acquisition or CPA might be someone who's paid for an account. So you sign up for, you know, a free account to like Netflix, right? You know, that would be a CPL. And then Netflix convinces you to start paying them every month. So you would now be like a CPA to them because they've acquired you as a paying customer. So that's kind of the other number we talk about. Like, where does that sit? Um, because your, your CPA, your CPL kind of affects your ROAS. If it's too high, it's going to be really hard to get a 3x ROAS because you're not going to have a high enough like average order value. And average order value is, is what it sounds like. It's just how much someone spends on average when they come to your website. Mm -hmm. uh, and as far as uh, cost per acquisition, cost per lead, are these things that you find yourself in the business of projecting or are these largely historical metrics? Mm, I wouldn't say we project as much as like clients want us to. Like a client the other day is like, tell me what it's going to be in 90 days. I'm like, I, I can't tell you the future. If I could, I wouldn't be fucking doing this as a job. I would be like doing something else. Um, so what we do with clients, like my experience would say for a B2B client, you know, you might spend 150, you might spend 250 to acquire a lead, um, depending on like, you know, what your B2B business sells. Um, and then from there, it's just a question of like your sales team or your, you know, your website's onboarding experience. How many of those people convert into a paying customer, assuming I've gotten you the right kind of lead to begin with. Um, so we don't try to project in the future. And I hate doing that when clients are asking me, you know, do a plan for the next 12 months. And I'm like, it's kind of a waste of time. And we've told clients, we told potential clients, which is we're not going to do it because it is a waste of time. Like you're asking me to predict the future based on very limited information. Like what if you change your website six months from now and you haven't told me that? Well, that's going to affect your, you know, your conversion rates. You know, that's going to affect how many people come to your website. That's going to affect current people coming to your website who are used to the old website and now have to get reoriented to the new website. Um, so we do as little projecting as we can because like, I'm not a musician, Mark. I, like I literally couldn't tell you what's going to happen in the future. Cause if I could, I'd probably be doing something else as a job. I think you would have a television show called Dwayne Dwan and you would just tell the future to people. And, and, I'd, be, um, I'd be like Cleo in the eighties on TV. It's <laughs> late at night, just telling people what's going on. Yeah. I think that's completely reasonable. So you mentioned that you don't do 12 month plans. How, how much do your clients know about what you're going to do in advance? We try to do like 60 days out. We try to figure out what are the things we want to potentially do in the next 60 days. And we always try to tell them like, these are all things we could do in the next 60 days, but which of these items we do is dependent on like what's successful tomorrow. So if we launch, you know, five campaigns and the one campaign we thought was going to be successful is a failure, well, we have to cut that failure of a campaign and focus on the other four. Um, so we definitely have like a 60-day plan, um, but we try not to go farther than that. The only kind of 12-month plan we did for one client was basically, this is a New York client still, is we basically took Excel sheets. I love Excel, by the way. Like I looked at the months across the top, 
down the side, we put every major American holiday or things that are really important. So, you know, they're going after parents. So as you know, Mark, like back to school is really important. You know, Memorial Day, you know, 4th of July might be really important. So we put all these sort of holidays down and we put, you know, when do we need to start planning for this holiday? You know, when do we need to have like assets? So whether it's like video or images or ad copy written, and then when do we want to launch our campaign, not just on like Facebook or Google, but when do we want to launch like email? When does the PR shop that the client has need to send out press releases? So that's kind of the only 12 month plan we put together because it's, it's a little bit more fluid and we're not committed to anything. We're just saying these are all the options for the holidays coming up. Let's figure out like which ones we want to focus on based on data for the last, you know, two years. So for this client, like back to school is really important. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed this, but like Easter is really important from like what they sell perspective. Uh, so those are kind of the two big ones we're going to focus on. The rest we'll just, you know, figure out as we go. Like International Women's Day is coming up in two weeks. Um, and we were going to do something, but I don't think we're going to do something now just because we're so focused on Easter and we're so focused on like trying to sell more of these pre-orders of this bike that we're like, well, let's just kill this campaign potentially um and like double down on these other things and then do you guys charge a, like how do you charge is it time is it a percentage of success is it a combination something else it's a combination we definitely don't charge for time because we don't think the value of what we did is contained in that hour of work like if i took an hour to launch a campaign but it makes you a million dollars over the next 12 months is that really like ten dollars really, yeah is that really worth just ten dollars uh, so every agency says they're different, but we actually kind of mean it. And one of the ways we try to differentiate ourselves is just how we price ourselves. So we have two parts to our fee. So we charge a client a flat 10% of ad spend that we actually manage. So if we're managing your Google and your Facebook, we'll charge you 10% of whatever that media spend is. So if you're spending $20,000 a month on Google and Facebook, we'll just charge you $2,000 for that month to manage those campaigns. And then the other half of our fee, which is really important, is our strategy fee. So we charge a client a monthly strategy fee every month, and that's to help us make sure that we're all thinking about, like, what are we going to do? Why are we going to do it? Is it going to help us reach our goal? And our goal for clients is usually, like, increased revenue um, for the year that's profitable. Um, and I want clients to pay for strategy because it's not just – this thing you do once and you set it and forget it. You've got to always think about like, you know, what's working in the strategy plan, what's not working, what are we going to kill, what are we going to keep, what are we going to change? It's more like, you know, it's more like, you know, Mark, if you flew up to Montreal, we got in a car together and we decided we we're going to do like Dwayne and Mark in a car and go down to New York and just take a drive, right? Like the path we may have picked well, it's great on Google Map, but maybe there's like construction along the way and we're going to have to detour. And so we want clients to pay for that strategy. So they're always like, you know, A, leaning on us when it makes sense and B, taking our advice when we give it because if you're going to pay us, you should take our advice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned creation of creative assets before. Are there certain ratios that you recommend as far as working media spend to production of creative assets? But the old one, I think, was 80-20. Yeah, we don't really use percentages like that. I mean, we try to look at what we're with the client will say, like, you know, minimum spend on an ad platform is like $5,000. You know, you'll probably get two or three ideas or two or three campaigns out of that for us to test and figure out what's going to work. And then it's just a question of figuring out, you know, how much creative you're going to need. Like, we have our own in-house designer. So if, like a client doesn't have an in-house designer, then um, we'll make ads for them, and which is just part of our strategy fee. We just bake it in. Um, but if the client has their own designer, then they can design stuff. But we try not to limit clients on the creative aspect of assets because like, 
I'm good. I love my job. I'm really smart, but I don't know what's going to convert half the time, like 90% of the time, if I'm going to be honest, like it's always about testing and learning and figuring out what converts for that client. Cause you could take client A and client B and they could be exactly the same nine out of 10 times. But if they go after different people or like if one sells a blue product versus a red product, you know, the same ad isn't necessarily going to work for both clients. So you're always going to be willing to like test out new stuff and just try new video, new ads on Facebook, new ads on Google, mm-hmm. um, because no one, no one can tell you what's going to work. It, it's, it's a fool's errand. Okay. And then for a startup that's wrapping its head around all of this at once, you know, not only how to spend money on, on which platforms and what success is, and then they're trying to work out how to do some kind of creative work as well. What are some of the missteps that you see from wrapping their heads around the numbers to then trying to work out how to create these assets that are going to sit on the platforms? Yeah, I think it's what we kind of talked about earlier. I think it's just going to down to focus. Like everyone wants to be on all the platforms at once. And so, you know, for most of our e-commerce clients, we say do Google first because Google has shopping, which is like their shopping product. Basically, like you type in an item in Google, you've probably seen those image ads where there's like a little picture of the item you typed in and there's usually a title and a price. We talk clients do that ad format because you can literally target your shopping ads to what people are searching for. And it's a lot easier to get revenue and get sales than it is to be on Facebook and just, you know, pray and spray the different audiences you can market to on Facebook. So we like, we try to get Google, you know, in the right place. It's kind of like building the house, you know, Google is the basement. You got to build that foundation. And then, you know, four, one might be Facebook, four, three might be Bing. And once you've got a good foundation where you can walk into work on a Monday and say, you know, I probably got, 20 sales this weekend, or I probably got a thousand sales this weekend because you have enough data and enough experience having run the campaigns in Google to get a good idea of what you're going to expect from like a revenue sales perspective. And whether that takes two months or six months, depending on whether you do it yourself or you hire us or you hire another agency, doesn't really matter. But once you have that consistency where you kind of predict what's going to happen over the weekend when you come in on Monday, that point I think is an okay point to expand to another ad platform, to expand somewhere else. But don't just like launch on Google tomorrow and then launch on Facebook tomorrow because you're just not you're not going to make it work. Hmm. Have you ever seen one type of message or one type of creative asset work really really well on one platform and then really fail on another platform? Yeah, I mean sometimes things you do on Google don't work on Bing all the time. Like the audiences are a little bit different, um, so sometimes it's just like tweaking the creative a little bit. Sometimes the big audience, not all the time, but sometimes the Bing audience can be a bit older depending on what you're selling. So just t- tweaking the creative to you know speak that audience makes a lot of sense. Facebook is a little bit of its own platform, I guess, in the sense that like it's you know essentially just a big banner ad you put in the news feed. Um, so unless you're already running display or banner ads on Google, it can be hard to say like this Google banner ad worked, but like it's not going to work on, on Facebook. And Facebook's also changing all the time as well, which makes it really difficult to like always know what's going to work. Mm. Uh, and on that, if you think back to say two years ago, are there platforms that you prioritize more now compared to then? What's changed? Yeah, for some of our B2B and our tech clients, we would say Quora and Pinterest. And Pinterest, Pinterest more for our e-commerce clients just because two years ago, they didn't have as many users. And now Quora and Pinterest respectively have about 300 million and 250 million like users or accounts each. And so they're not obviously as big as like Google and Facebook at like 2.5 million each or whatever they each have. But there's enough traction there and enough quality of people on Core and Pinterest that you could build some really good remarketing campaigns. On Pinterest, you can rebuild really some good like lead generation campaigns. 
on Quora. So those are kind of the two we prioritize a little bit more for clients if they've like already maxed out Google, they've already maxed out Bing and Facebook, and they want to know like where else can we spend a bit of money, just try to like acquire more customers profitably. Mm. Yeah, Quora and it's Q U O R A for people who are unfamiliar with it and Pinterest. Uh, they're so big, but they still feel really underground. Like I don't see them get get a lot of media attention. That's true. I mean, Pinterest just put out the other day they're gonna cut a file for IPO, so that's been in the news. I think a little bit, like like tech news. And I, my one of my friends who works at Quora actually just got a job there a few months ago, so I see stuff just on Twitter because I follow him and he talks about stuff. Um, but they're definitely not maybe in the mainstream news and stuff. And I think, at least from what I've read, I think in the past, I think the people at Pinterest like it that way because unless it's a fast company article, Pinterest is kind of happy just to have their heads down and get their work done. And same thing with Quora, they just they don't need to be in the news. They don't want to catch the collateral damage of the Googles and the Facebooks missteps. And so they're like, we'll be in the news when it makes sense, but let's just like get our head down and do the work. Mm. Yeah, I still get a sense that Quora is trying to work itself out. I've been on that platform for ages. I've written stuff. Some of it's had a bunch of views. Some of it hasn't. It's always a bit unpredictable with that. And I think for a couple of years, it went really spammy and I didn't pay as much attention to it. They cleaned the interface up and allowed different kinds of following. And now they've got this whole ask a question and you get paid based on impressions or answers which is a little odd but i get it they're trying to somehow incentivize and reward people who are contributing to the platform but yeah there's a lot of really good information up there yeah yeah, i've been on there for a few years since i don't know 2016 or something like that i like i like core it's good i don't go as much as maybe reddit just from like a community educational standpoint but it is it is a good place to check out Mm. Yeah, Reddit's interesting as well. I have phases with all these things. Where one, like, every time I go to Pinterest, I'm like, God, why am I on this all, all day? It's just got so much really interesting stuff. But then I'm not, and then every few months I'll go check it out, and I'm like, ah, oh, so good. Do you find that there are certain products or services or categories that don't really lend themselves to the type of work that you want to do? I'm say like yes, no. I mean, there probably are that maybe I just can't think of. I mean, we had an auto client who was just selling tires. And I found that really difficult. This was like back in August, September. And it took about two attempts of like restructuring what our, what our creative and what our strategy was to get it to work. Um, and then about three or four weeks in, we're getting it to work. And the week later, like the, the new COO basically fired our point of contact and fired us. And like, just let us finish out our 30-day notice contract, which is really nice of them because some clients will just fire you and, and basically tell you we're not paying you and that's it. Um, so that one I found a little bit difficult. And I think that industry as a whole is a little bit difficult as well. I don't know if you bought tires, Mark. I feel like you probably don't have a car because you're in New York with the fam jam. Correct. Um, but like going to these sites, it's like you got to know what model number you want and what kind of car. And I'm like, well, if I don't know that stuff you've already turned me off as someone who, who needs to like shop for tires and stuff like that. So I think the tire auto industry is just so far behind where they could be from like a technology usability standpoint that like it's harder than it has to be because I fully believe people would buy a car online or more people would buy a car online if the experience was a lot better. Mm-hmm. And what happens when it does the, the clients outgrow you and what happens then? Oh yeah, that happens all the time. I assume every client will outgrow us. I mean, we're only we're only a team of three. We're like a pretty small uh, agency as, as a whole, and this will make sense because because you lived in America enough. But I always say we're kind of like SEAL Team Six, right? You send in SEAL Team Six when you need like a specific job done. You need a team to do it correctly. We're not like the bigger agencies that might be like the Army or the Navy, where they're just going to brute force attack everything. 
Um, so usually the way it works with clients is they'll sign us. We know that we're around for eight, nine months, a year. And then we've done such a good job uh, that they usually be like, well, we like you, but we can now afford to like hire somebody internally. So we're just going to fire you now. And so that's usually what happens. And we don't take it personally because I just always assume we're just going to outgrow the company and they're going to want to hire someone internally for most of the reasons big agencies get fired. It's because like, oh, we can control things more and there's better experience and they focus on our brand 24-7 and you don't and, and stuff like that. So we don't take it personally. We kind of just built it into our business model of profitability that we're only going to see a client for the next eight to 12 months because they will just eventually hire someone because they're so profitable and they're making so much money from the job we've done. They can afford to pay someone 50, 60, 70, $80,000 a year and have them just take over all the work we're going to do. And we're okay with that. We like, we make sure the onboarding is really good. Like with one client, we're actually helping them hire like our replacement. So we're helping them figure out like who, who is the best person to hire out of the four. And actually before I came to talk to you, it was like the final interview with the, with the fourth person. Um, and they didn't think I was going to do this, but I actually liked the third person we talked to or no, the second person we talked to and that was their least favorite. But I felt that second person was actually just more qualified than the other people. The other people just found a little bit, just a little bit basic, a little bit average. Um, so we do have definitely have clients who outgrow us. We don't take it personally. We built it into our model. Like 30% of our revenue is also just a lot of like one-off projects. Someone's hired us to fix a Google Analytics issue or they've hired us to audit their account or they've hired us to help them with strategy or they've hired us to do some sort of training. So we definitely built a model where like you're going to leave us in you know nine to 12 months and that's okay. We want you to be like the best possible company you can be and that may not be with us for long term. Hmm. So, I mean, there are a lot of people in the, I'll call it the advertising world, broadly speaking, the advertising world who are contemplating the freelance life, the part-time life, being a consultant. And I, I, do, I personally do see these three, those three things as a little bit different or building their own business. And at some point, people will, be, will ask them about what status they are. For some reason, those words are really important so that someone can understand you. And here's to everyone who's thinking about creating their own business. So many people will treat you and talk, you, talk to you as a freelancer and they'll use that word because that word means certain things to certain companies. Keep, mm-hmm. an, eye out, keep an eye on it. Feel free to correct people and say, I'm not a freelancer, I'm a company. Because uh, yeah. typically a freelancer sells time and w- works in the way that the existing company wants them to work. So to me, there's actually an illusion of more independence, but not always real yep. independence. And so for people who are thinking about setting up on their own in whatever way they are, could you talk to me about how you approach and how you think about your own business and pricing and what you do want to do, what you don't want to do, and how to package it all? Mark, that question is like a whole other podcast. Um, but if I was going to like lay it down simply. Uh, you know, I freelanced a long time in Toronto when I was in my 20s. Uh, and I learned a lot about like, you know, the most important thing, if there's anything someone listens to, it's like cash flow is everything. It's not revenue numbers in a spreadsheet. It's like actually money in your bank. That is everything. Everything else is just like bullshit. But like the way I think about it is like when I started the company in 2017, like, you know, I sold hours, I did project rates, I did a bit of everything because I just needed to accumulate enough work and enough clients to like survive the year because I like I quit my job with a bit of a plan. But the plan was like just basically make 80, 90 grand a year and I could pay myself and be comfortable. But that was really exhausting because I don't know if you ever sold hours, Mark. I imagine you have at some point, but like selling hours is bad in my opinion because like, A, like we said earlier, what you've done is not with 
like the value of what you created is not in the hour that you worked. It, it's bigger than that. You should charge for more than that. Um, but also with hours, and the only way to like make more money is you've got to work more hours. And so if I was charging you $300 for an hour today, and it took me an hour to do this task, and a year from now, I've got that task down to a half an hour, but it's the exact same task with the exact same value. Is that task now only worth $150? In my mind, it's not. So if you're going to sell hours, I think that's really the challenge is you get better at your job, but then you start to make less money. And some people say, well, why don't you just charge the client more money? Most clients are just going to tell you to fuck off. If we're going to be honest with you, they're not going to want to pay more money per hour. So I try to tell all my friends, do not sell hours. I think it's the worst way to sell stuff. And there's lots of people who will buy hours from you. And there's lots of clients we don't win the business because they want us to sell hours, but we just walk away. Like if you want to sell hours, you just want the cheapest person in the room or you want to be the control people. And that's just not the way we work. Sometimes with clients or we work with other agencies, we'll do like a project fee. So we'll like, we'll scope out the project really deep, understand what the deliverables are, and then we'll charge them whatever our fee is. And so we'll, we'll say, well, we think if I'm going to do back a hand, I'll say like, I think it's going to take me these many hours. I back out the hours out of the project. I top on a profit margin. I top on what I think the value of that project is if we're successful. I also figure out like what I think the project will be if it's not successful because there's still value in there. I think there's a learning experience. Um, and then I say, like, here's the price. Agencies accept it. They don't accept it. We bargain back and forth a little bit. Um, so I always make sure I leave room in my pricing for negotiations because negotiations are always going to happen. If you don't negotiate with me, I don't, I don't lose respect for you. But I definitely gain more respect if someone tries to negotiate with me just a little bit. Assuming the person has not lowballed me because we have a client right now who totally lowballed me on a price. And I'm just like, that is half of what I just quoted you. And I just, I basically told them no. And then they came back to me again and with the same price. And I just told them like, no. And then they came up like 30%. And I'm like, well, no, you're still nowhere near my price. So this is still a no. Uh, and finally they met the price I wanted. And so like when we price things, we think about like a, what work are we doing? So the fact that we're going to run campaigns, we just charge 10% of spend because the work is just like painful at times and there's lots of nitty gritty in there. And we also tell clients like, if you're going to give me 10,000 today and then you're going to give me $20,000 next month because I'm doing an awesome job, why shouldn't my team get the benefit of a higher fee for the extra work? And the fact that you just trust us because I need to like hire people and hiring people is super expensive. You've got salary and payroll and like vacation and just all these things you got to pay for if i want to hire the best people possible i've got to pay them but in order to pay them i've got to make sure i have the right fees and have the right fees means that if you're going to give us more money to spend because you trust us i want to be able to make more money off you as a client so that i can invest more resources into you as a client so that's kind of why we do the 10 percent of media and then the strategy fee is just because you know as a perfect example we had one client it took three weeks to onboard them for like lots of reasons, both in and outside of our control. And so having that strategy fee there at the front means that we don't work for free for those first three weeks, right? We've got that built-in fee where if we don't even launch a campaign for the work we've done on like helping them set up ad accounts and then help them figure out how to connect certain platforms and helping them figure out like what they should do on XYZ problem, we've made a bit of money off that because, you know, strategy or opinion matters and we should be paid for it so that's kind of how we like how we figured out how we're going to price it in terms of like what we want to do uh this is a constant struggle like people come to us to run campaigns which i love to do and will always do but i'd love to get and love to do more you know like a b testing figuring out like what works with more clients i'd love to do just more more training like helping teams just be better and smarter because i see people work at other places i see people and the accounts they built, and there's just a lot of 
what is that like bad information, misinformation going on there? Like people don't have the proper training if they come from an agency or they've just got hired as a junior employee and they don't have anyone to lean on to tell them, well, you could do it this way, but if you do it this way, you're going to have these problems crop up. And so I'd love to do like just more training, more education, more workshops, um, just this year, next year, because I think there's a good area in there, but it's a challenge because you've got like, you know, the red academies and the general assemblies and they're kind of encroaching in that area. And so it makes it hard to like compete as a small shop and say, hire us versus sending your person to like a general assembly class, which they're probably good, but they're probably not going to go very deep. They'll probably be very surface level. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question and nothing to do with marketing. I find that when I travel around the world, you're like, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Here are my 50 million tips. Not okay. Kidding. But you know, like good tips. Good. Um, like where haven't you been that you would like to go? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I mean, yeah, I've been to 40 countries and six, and six continents. So I guess there's two places when I think about it. I'd love to see more of Africa as a continent. I've been to Morocco and I loved it, but I'd love to see just, I think, more Africa in general. And the other thing is, it's something I've always said I would do and I just haven't done. And, and you'll either love or hate me right now, Mark is an Australian. I've never seen Uluru in, in Australia, despite having been to Australia three times. So I'd love to go back to Australia and like get a week where I can just like fly to the middle of the country, see Uluru, which is the big red rock, like spend two or three nights in the outback and just like under the stars and kind of just hang out and relax. Those would be like the two things if I could do it. Because I've like, I've seen the Northern Lights in Iceland. I've seen the Northern Lights in Canada. I've seen shooting stars. I've seen all these like beautiful modern wonders of the world, but I've not seen all over and I'm just like, I don't love to do that. Mm, yeah, I, I haven't either. I need, I need to travel more of Australia. We used to do really long car trips. It'd be like Sydney to Melbourne or Sydney to Brisbane or Sydney to Port Macquarie and Sydney to Melbourne, Sydney to Brisbane back then. I think it was like 12 to 14 hours and you'd stay in a cheap little motel along the way or camp or something. But I haven't been to many other parts of Australia, to be honest. That's fair. I mean, you know, I live there and I, I really spent my time between Melbourne and Sydney, but I did travel to like Cairns, Darwin, Perth. A couple of years ago, I spent a conference. So I went to Adelaide. Um, so I think I did most of the big cities and I did New Zealand, which obviously is a different country, but I've done New Zealand, which I loved a lot. Um, but yeah, I just love to go to the middle of the country and see all the route because I think it'd be like a really just a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And New Zealand's beautiful too. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah. I mean, I probably spend most of my time on Twitter. So just like Dwayne Brown at Twitter, but also um, if you just go to like take some risk.com, if you want to like, you know, reach out and chat with us about like a problem you're having or a challenge. Um, those are kind of the two places I probably spend most of the time is on our website and figuring out how to make it better, but just also on like Twitter in general. And what's the hashtag that a lot of you and your colleagues and other companies are using on Twitter to discuss some of these topics? Yeah. So the one we use is PPC chat is the hashtag. So we have a chat uh, every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and that's kind of where most of us, I guess, in North America and sort of Western Europe will, will chat on a Tuesday. Mm. Um, and then throughout the week, people will post questions and comments and concerns. So it's kind of a good thing to follow to keep up with like what's going on in the industry and, and chat with me or just chat with anyone who's, who follows that hashtag. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today to chat marketing startups. May you enjoy your time in Montreal. I will. Thank you. (laughs) I will, Mark. Thank you. And may you adopt my my nickname, Dwayne Duan. So I do you, love it. And you have to, you and the wife and the kids have to come visit Montreal. Like, we'll go out for dinner. We'll hang out. Like come in the summer. It's, it's gorgeous. I, as is most of Canada. I want to travel there just to watch comedy. 
I need a comedy festival in my life. Yeah, yeah. come. It's big here. I know. I know. Awesome. Dwayne Dwan. Dwayne Brown, thank you for joining me on Sweathead today, my man. Thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Please.